0: If you would open up your scripture and turn with me to Luke chapter 23, starting verse 1. Luke chapter 23, verse 1. And I'd like to just kind of jump right into the passage this morning. We have a lot of scripture I'm, I'm going to try to get through and cover. Um, as we're getting closer and closer to, to Jesus on the cross, this is the trial of Jesus before the cross. And I was just thinking about it. Um, how appropriate is it that as we get close to the holidays... That uh, we see Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, to get through that during the time of Thanksgiving and, and Christmas as we celebrate his birth. Uh, remembering why Jesus came to this earth and what he did for us. So with that said, uh, just some context of the passage we're going to be going over this morning. Um, this is Friday. and This is of the Passion Week. Jesus' arrest it was Thursday night, Friday morning. And all morning, Jesus has been on trial already in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious leaders. It was a religious trial, and the whole goal of the Sanhedrin was clearly just to put Jesus to death. To find something that they could give capital punishment to, the the death penalty to, for Jesus. And they found him guilty of blasphemy, which... With what Jesus said, as we talked about last week, if he wasn't, God would have been blasphemy. But if he is God, of course it isn't. The Jewish law saw blasphemy as worthy of death, but here's the problem. it's two things. First, the Sanhedrin didn't have the authority to put uh, a person to death, to give the death penalty. Only the Romans had that authority. And secondarily, the, the Romans wouldn't put someone to death for blasphemy. They could care less about the religious uh, beliefs of the Jewish people. So the goal of the Sanhedrin then was to try to convince the Romans somehow in a Roman trial to to give Jesus the death penalty. And that's the passage that we're going to be going over today. The Sanhedrin takes Jesus to a Roman trial. And this Roman trial happens in three phases. Phase one is Jesus before Pilate. Phase two is Jesus before Herod, and phase three is Jesus before Pilate a a second time. So that's going to be kind of our outline of this passage this morning. We're going to cover a lot of scripture this morning, so um, if you would, look at verse one of chapter 23. This is the first phase, the first part of this trial before Pilate. Verse one says this, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. The whole company is talking about the Sanhedrin. They all came and brought Jesus uh, to Pilate. This is after their trial, as I said before, uh, hoping again that the Romans, Pilate, would would give the death penalty to Jesus. Pilate was uh, the Roman governor of Judea at that time. He was the Roman governor from A.D. 26 to to A.D. 36. His home wasn't in Jerusalem. His home was actually in Caesarea, which was more of a Roman city culturally than Jerusalem was, and that's where he governed. But because it was Passover and the massive amount of people from all over the world, the Jews that would pilgrim and come to Jerusalem, he spent this week in Jerusalem to keep his eye on things right to to keep the peace. So verse one says this. Then the whole company of them, the Sanhedrin, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. In verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, We find this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to, to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. There's three charges that the Sanhedrin um, give here. And, and a side note none of them are blasphemy. This kind of shows you the hypocrisy of the Sanhedrin at this point. In their trial, they want to put him to death for blasphemy, but they know the Romans won't, so they had to make up three charges that are all three not true of Jesus. The first charge is this. We find this man misleading our nation. This was most likely a charge of rebellion against the Roman government. In other words, they were saying that Jesus was starting a revolution starting a rebellion that, that was going to attack the Roman government, right? which was a lie. We talked about this last week. There's not even a hint of rebellion against Rome in Jesus' teachings. The second charge that was given to Jesus was, was forbidding us, the Jews, he's forbidding us to pay tribute or, or taxes to Caesar, right? which again is another lie. Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God, that's when he was asked about tax taxes. And, and, and he wasn't teaching tax evasion or not to pay taxes to Caesar. No one took it that way. It wasn't implied. I mean, to this day, when we teach on that passage, the implication is to pay your taxes. This charge, again, was a lie. The third charge against Jesus in verse 2 was saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, this is the main charge the other two charges were really a support of this charge. And this is what, as we will see in the trial, Pilate focuses on. Again, this was misleading. This is what one commentator said. Though at the, the triumphal entry, Jesus had received the crowd's adoration, he never publicly made a claim to be the Messiah, and certainly not in the political sense with which they were charging him. We talked about this last week. Jesus Claimed to be the Messiah. Don't get me wrong. He claimed to be the Christ, but he never claimed that that publicly And he avoided those terms Messiah and Christ because he wasn't starting a political revolution right? what, what his definition of the Christ and, and Messiah was different than what everyone else would have heard and again The charges were a political charge to Rome So at best they're misleading All three charges were false charges against Jesus. Matthew 27 actually adds something interesting. Please don't turn there. Let me just read this real, real quickly. It's Matthew 27, 13 says this. Then, then Pilate said to him, Jesus, said to him, do you hear how many things they are testifying against you? But he gave him no answer. I want you to just kind of picture the scene. Uh, Pilate, they're in Pilate's court uh, courtyard here, the Roman governor of this time. And Jesus is probably standing next to Pilate on an elevated something. And they're looking at the religious leaders as the religious leaders in the Jewish nation at this point is making all these false accusations against Jesus. And he, Jesus, remains silent. He, He doesn't defend himself. Verse 14, it says this, But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pilate was looking at this going, wow, this this is amazing. He's not defending himself. Later on, you should be in Luke still. Look at verse 9, just real quick. We're going to talk about this. But but the same thing happened in the front of, of Herod. So he being Herod questioned Jesus, questioned him at some length. He continued to question him. But he made no answer. And Sanhedrin was there uh, vehemently, it says, uh, accusing Jesus. And, and, and Jesus made no answer. He, he remained silent. The same thing happened earlier that morning, Friday morning, in front of the Sanhedrin. We talked about this last week. You don't need to turn here either. But Matthew 26, verse 62 says, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What, it, what is it these men testify against you? Verse 63 says, But Jesus remained silent. Silent. When Jesus was getting accused in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of Pilate, and in front of Herod, he remained silent. Of course, this was a fulfillment of Isaiah fifty-three seven, which says, "He who was was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep." That is before its shearers is silent, so he open not his mouth. Last week I mentioned that there's something going on here that we don't really pick up as Westerners. I heard an anthropologist talk about this. Um, to not answer your accusers in the, the honor shame society in Jesus' day and age was very shameful. In other words, Jesus allowed this shame to be heaped up on him. And the anthropologist was saying that 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 there's no way the crowds at that point, because Jesus had so much honor, would have let him be crucified. But him remaining silent as these accusations came, and the shame that was falling upon on Jesus, the crowds turn on him. Pilate, at this point, realizes this is going nowhere. Jesus in front of the crowd, so he, he grabs Jesus and pulls him inside, inside of his headquarters. And verse three in Luke chapter twenty-three says this. And Pilate asked him, just him and him and Jesus. Pilate's having a conversation with Jesus inside. Are you the King of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. This clearly, as you've gone through this this trial um, before the religious leaders, and at this point is a is a positive answer. It's a yes. But this is all kind of Luke gives between the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. But there's more to this conversation that actually John gives us some insight to. So if you could turn with me to John chapter 18, verse 33. John chapter 18, verse 33. Again, this is a conversation between Jesus and Pilate inside of his headquarters, away from the religious leaders, It says this in verse 33, John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters and again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this out of your own accord, or did did others say it uh, to you about me? In other words, I believe Jesus was asking here, Pilate, are you interested in the truth? Or are you just going through the legal procedure here? Pilate, do you want to know the truth? And Pilate, I think, was offended in this, this uh, red, or, uh, next portion. It says in verse 35 Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? It's a rhetorical question. And Pilate is saying, hey, I'm not a Jew. I could care less about your religion, your beliefs, your your, your Jewish God. And by the way, Jesus, look what he says in verse thirty-five: Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. So what have you done? Right? Are you this king that they're claiming you're claiming to be? And Jesus answers in verse thirty-six: Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was were of this world, my servants would have been fighting." That I, not, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus' answer is, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, I am not trying to start a revolution, Pilate. I am not trying to start a war here. If I was, we'd be fighting. Look at verse 37. This is Pilate responds, and Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Yes, I am a king, but here's my purpose, Pilate, to bear witness to the truth. Pilate, are you interested in the truth? In other words, I think Jesus here... Is making an appeal to Pilate, not for mercy, not to be released, but for Pilate to recognize the truth, for Pilate to listen to truth. Pilate, are you interested in the truth? And look what he says, verse verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? It's ironic. The divine embodiment of truth is standing before Pilate. And he has the audacity to say, what is truth? It's Jesus. He's standing right in front of you. So they have this conversation. And and after this conversation, I just want to be clear. From this point on, it's clear in the Gospels that, that Pilate believes Jesus is innocent. And there's no point he changes his mind. This man is, is, Pilate might be thinking Jesus is crazy. He's some religious leader, but but he's not trying to overthrow the Romans, that's for sure, right? He's harmless. One commentator said this, Pilate makes a quick assessment of Jesus based on his demeanor, his appearance, his attitude, and his answers. And Pilate concludes that he's not guilty of the charges brought against him, apparently gathering that Jesus is just a harmless religious teacher and hardly a threat to Roman rule. Right? Pilate's judgment is innocence. And that's the second half of verse 38. Look, it says, And after this, and after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Right? I mean, he's innocent. Now turn back real quick to Luke. We're going to go back and forth between this. Luke chapter 23, verse 4. We see the same line. It picks up again after this conversation. Luke chapter 23, verse 4, the same line which says, Then Pilate said to the chief priest—he walks outside, okay? Then he said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Right? Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent. And again, that, that never changes. He never changes his mind. Pilate's verdict is innocent. And, and if he was a just ruler— Right? A just judge, everything would have ended there. But look at verse 5. But they were urgent. That's the, the religious leaders. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea and from Galilee, to, to, even to this place. It says they were urgent. That word urgent in Greek is episkuo. A, a pis, a which means to do something persistently with, with, with very strong effort. It means they did not accept Pilate's verdict, but persistently and strongly spoke out against it. Now, I want you to think right, where Pilate is in this, in this back and forth and what's going on in his mind. Right? He has one job to do as a governor for, from the Romans, from the people that are above him. And his one job is to keep the peace. Don't let riots or war or rebellion break out. Keep the peace. It's Passover, meaning there's thousands of Jews there, and the tensions are high, and this crowd is getting more and more aggravated. They're getting more and more upset. They want Jesus dead. And it's becoming obvious that they weren't going to take no as an answer. So here's Pilate's thoughts, I'm guessing. if If I have Jesus killed, I'm killing an innocent man. But if I don't have him killed, a riot might start. And the crowd is getting more and more upset. It says they were urgently saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Look at verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. Pilate heard a word when they were talking, the word Galilee. And he he saw a possible escape from this dilemma. Right? Galilee wasn't part of his jurisdiction. He wasn't in charge of Galilee. That's Herod's jurisdiction. So look at verse 7. And when he, this is Pilate, learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was, him with, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Right. Pilate thought, hey, I can pass this off. I see an escape here. I'm gonna I'm gonna give this this is not part of my jurisdiction. Herod, you deal with it. He's from your your area. Passing off Jesus and the Jews to not have to deal with this whole mess. Which takes us to the second phase of this trial before the Romans, and this is Jesus before Herod. Look at verse 7 again. It says this He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. This is Herod um, Antipas. Right? This is a different Herod than Herod the Great. Right? One commentator said this about Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was, was one of the sons of Herod the Great, who died after a long rule in 4 BC. When he died, that's Herod the Great, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided up among his sons. One of them was Herod Antipas, and he was given Galilee, over which he ruled from 4 BC to A.D. 39. With the exceptions of the account of Jesus' birth, Antipas is the Herod talked about in the Gospels. It gets confusing because they're just called Herod, King Herod and Herod. Um, but as we get to the Christmas time, the Herod the Great that's talked about in the in Jesus' birth is a different Herod than this Herod. This is the Herod that, that had John the Baptist's head chopped off. This Herod ruled over Galilee. And was under the authority of Rome. He represented Rome as a ruler. And because it was Passover, just like Pilate, and there are so many people coming to Jerusalem, Herod was in Jerusalem for this week. So Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. Look at verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see um, some signs done by him. Herod, unlike Pilate, Herod's very familiar with the Jewish culture. Being from Galilee, of course, he's heard probably many, many stories of Jesus' miracles, crazy miracles. So he's excited to to meet Jesus, hoping to see some kind of magic show by Jesus. Which I get this picture of Herod just from the... Incident with John the Baptist in this one, that he's some kind of guy that just enjoyed parties and, and wanted to see shows all the time of some sort. But he was disappointed. Look at verse 9. So he questioned him, Jesus. He questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Just like Pilate, the chief priests, and the religious leaders, and the scribes were standing there and accusing Jesus of all all these things. And he remained silent. Verse 9, he says, he made no answer. Look at verse 11. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. I'm sure the accusations where he claims to be king, the Messiah, the Christ. He claims to be the Son of Man. as we talked about last week what Jesus claimed to be and the Son of God. And so here's Herod dressing him up and mocking him. It says in, in the second part of verse 11, they are uh, uh, then arraigning him in splendid clothing, which that, that Greek word means shiny or bright, like king-like clothing. He probably took some clothes from his own wardrobe and put it on Jesus, and they were mocking him. You claim to be all these saints, yet you won't even answer your accusers. In the last part of verse eleven it says he sent him back to Pilate. Then Luke adds something very interesting, a little side note. It says in in uh Luke verse or verse twelve, Luke twenty three, verse twelve, it says this. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this they had been at I- enmity with each other. In other words, they, they, these two hated each other till this point. Then they became friends, which is something interesting. You see throughout the Gospels, the Sadducees hated the Pharisees, who hated the Her- Heridians, and, and, and they all come together in this common hatred of Jesus, They become friends in in this common goal of getting Jesus killed and Herod and Pilate become friends in their mocking of Jesus. This leads back to the third phase of this trial which is Jesus before Pilate a second time. Right? They're back in other words at at Pilate's headquarters and at this point Pilate knows two things for sure. The, The scriptures are clear. He knows two things for sure. First, Jesus is innocent. And again, he doesn't change his mind on that. He knows without a doubt Jesus is innocent. And second, the religious leaders just wanted Jesus dead because they were jealous. It says in in Matthew 28, 18, For he, Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. In other words, Pilate knew that The priest wanted this innocent man dead out of envy. So look at verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. Luke adds the people. It wasn't just the religious leaders at this point. The Jewish nation is turning on Jesus and, and coming behind the religious leaders. Verse 14, and said to them, You brought me this man... As one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him right Pilate is as clear as can be this man is innocent, but to please the crowd, look at verse 16. I will therefore punish and release him. Okay, I'm not going to put him to death. because He doesn't deserve that. He's innocent, but I'll beat him up for you if you want me to. I mean, this tells you a little bit of what Pilate is like. Okay, that 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 may satisfy you guys, but look at the, priest, uh, the priests and the scribes. They didn't want him to be beat. They wanted him dead. Verse 18 says, uh, but they cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? Well, the other gospels really kind of fill in the gaps here, and I'm thankful again for the four gospels. We we know so much about what has gone on um, during the trial and everything. Matthew tells us that it was custom at this point that the Roman government would release a prisoner each year in the time of of uh, Passover, every Passover, the Roman government would, would allow a Jewish prisoner to be released. This was probably for political reasons to ease the tensions that were going on with the the Jews in Rome. right The Jews were very anti Roman remember too it 's Passover, meaning thousands of Jews have pilgrimed to all over the world have pilgrimed to jerusalem it 's just teething with people, and they 're celebrating the passover which is a celebration of a past deliverance from a foreign regime that was controlling them it was it was celebrating when when uh, israel was taken out of egypt meaning if there was ever going to be a revolt against rome passover was the perfect time and pilate wasn't stupid he knew this so pilate where a former Roman government made a, made a custom to release a Jewish prisoner each year to kind of ease tension between Israel and the Rome, Romans. But with this custom, he, he got another idea. He's trying to do whatever he can to, to not put Jesus to death. And so he thinks, right, to get out of this situation, I'm going to bring out the worst criminal I can find and say pick one of the two to be released. Do you want me to release Jesus, this innocent man, or Barabbas, a notorious prisoner, Matthew twenty-seven tells us, a revolutionary, who also was a robber, John 1840 tells us, and a murderer. Look at what verse 18 says. But they cried out together, away with this man, Jesus, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison. For an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Can you see the hatred? I mean, it's just building. I mean, the heart is getting exposed by the religious leaders here. Pure hatred for Jesus. Really a man that just came and and spoke truth. Look at verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify Him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I I will therefore punish and release him. Listen, and that's exactly what Pilate did besides the release part. Pilate thought, man, maybe if I just beat him enough, right, get him to this place where where he is so beat up and pull him out in front of the Jews, they'll have sympathy for him and say, all right, you've done enough, let him go. Turn back to John 19. John 19, verse one says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. If you have the NASB, it says scourged him, which probably sounds closer to what truly happened. This was a horrific whipping. These whips from the Roman guard and were made of these leather straps, not just one, but, but many. And the end of each of these straps would be pieces of metal or bone. Hard, sharp, sharp objects that were, were meant to, to cut the skin, to, to cut into the muscle, to literally rip off skin and muscle from the back. Historical records report that many times after a, a flogging, bone and entrails would be seen. Jewish law only allowed a person to get flogged 39 times because they they said no one can survive more than 39 whippings. 40 is too much. But Roman law allowed a scourging until the soldier that was doing it grew tired and couldn't do it anymore. Many floggings just ended in death. The man couldn't survive it, couldn't survive the beating. Look at verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, arrayed uh, him in a purple go- uh, robe. Put a crown of thorns and a purple robe, which again, purple is the sign of wealth and royalty. This is to mock him. The thorns, of course, penetrated his skull, blood coming down, flowing. Verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. To remind you, this is after a, a whole night of beatings by the Sanhedrin. Jesus would have been barely alive at this point, a bloody mess, barely recognizable as a man. Again, which was prophesied. Isaiah fifty-two fourteen says this in the ESV. It says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred m- uh, beyond human semblance and his, his form beyond that of, a, of the children of men. I like the New Living Translation. I think it just gives a clearer explanation of this, this passage. It says this, But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured He seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Look at verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Jesus is this bloody mess, disfigured, hardly looking human. Pilate says to them, to the religious leaders, as Jesus is standing there, Behold the man thinking, of course, the religious leaders will say, all right, that's enough. That's enough. Let him go. Verse six, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Do you feel the hatred? It's no sympathy. I want to tell you, It's not in my notes, but the Bible makes it clear that this hatred is in every one of our hearts before salvation. Skip to verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. In other words, they're telling, that's a threat. They're telling Pilate, if you release this man, we're going over your head, Pilate. We're going to say, you let a revolutionary out. Everyone, look at verse 12. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat um, down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Look, Pilate at this point is just being sarcastic. He knows that he has to crucify Jesus or there's going to be a riot. He knows he's going to. And so he's saying, hey, look at your king. He's all beat up. This is the king of the Jews. He's being sarcastic. But look at the response by the priest. This is amazing. Verse 15, the chief priest answer, we have no king but Caesar. And at this point, they would do and say whatever it took to get rid of Jesus. Their hatred for Jesus far surpassed their hatred for the Romans. I mean, think about this. They're looking at Jesus, who at this point is just torn into pieces. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Verse 16. So he, this is Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. The, the trial ends. Pilate is sending Jesus, an innocent man. He knows he's innocent. He's declared him innocent to the cross. I think Matthew 27 Chapter 27, verse 24, captures this moment really well. It says this, So when Pilate saw that he was, he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, His blood is on us and our children then he released them or then he released for them barabbas and after having scourged jesus delivered him to be crucified so much could be said about the trial of jesus but i have three closing reflections that i think will be helpful for us as a church to process what happened three closing reflections first The innocence of Jesus. The innocence of Jesus. Kent Hughes, there's a pastor, writes this. The trial of Jesus before Herod clearly affirmed three times that Jesus was politically innocent, undeserving of death. This final court, right, this final court unwittedly declared what is theologically true about Jesus that he was, and is, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1:29. 20, he is the fulfillment of what um, was symbolized by the millions of unblemished lambs sl- slain under the old covenant. I mean think about this. If any one of us were on trial, we would be found guilty. There was only one man that, fought, uh, that walked the face of the earth that was completely innocent. That was Jesus, the spotless, perfect, unblemished lamb. He was completely sinless. There was no rebellion. I mean, the charge was rebellion. That's amazing to me. Right? All of us would be charged with rebellion against God, worshiping other things other than God. But Jesus never once rebelled against God. First Peter two twenty two. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found on his mouth. Second Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake he was made to be sin who knew no sin. He was sinless, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews four fifteen for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. First John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Completely sinless, completely innocent. And, and Pilate and Herod testified to this. The innocence of Jesus this is our first reflection. But the second reflection is this, the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man. Let me start with Herod. He just wanted to see a magic show, right? A side show. It's clear that Herod knew Jesus was innocent. It's clear that, that Herod knew that Jesus did some amazing miracles. And why didn't anyone stop and go, well, how could he do these miracles if God's not on his side? It's clear that, that Herod knew that Jesus' life was in his hands. And instead of seeking truth, Instead of standing up for what's right and just, he mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. I mean, think about Pilate, right? And to be honest, I read Pilate and I almost feel sorry for him. This is what one commentator said. The betrayal of of Pilate in the gospel is a tragic one. He held an unfortunate position in an unfortunate place at an unfortunate time. He tried his best over and over again to release Jesus and only gave in to overwhelming pressure. But before one gets too sympathetic toward this man, we must remember what he did. He sentenced someone to a horrific death after a horrific beating who he knew was innocent. He was unwilling to do what he knew was right. He sent the most innocent person that ever walked the face of the earth to death while believing in his innocence. Such a person doesn't deserve any sympathy or pity, but only scorn. And history will always remember him in the following terms. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified. Pilate was face to face with the truth, and his response was, What is truth? With that one phrase, Pilate made it clear that he cared more about his reputation, his career, his popularity, his well-being, his wealth, than truth. Truth to Pilate was a means to an end. The end was selfish ambition, pride, self-worship, self-interest. The means truth, in his worldview, could be bent, molded, even ignored if it accomplished the desire ends. Pilate sacrificed justice, he sacrificed truth, and he sacrificed Jesus to preserve his own career. Lastly, the religious leaders. They were not any better than Pilate. Men who who claimed to be men of conviction, right? Men of the book, the Old Testament scripture, a lot of them having the whole Old Testament memorized actually had no convictions. I mean, think about it. Jesus came teaching authoritatively and didn't contradict Scripture at all. He actually knew Scripture better than anyone, better than the Pharisees, better than the scribes, better than elders, better than the priests. No one could stand up to his wisdom and his knowledge of Scripture. He backed everything up with Scripture and then backed everything up with ridiculous public miracles. Healed whole cities. Healed blind men fed thousands, walked on water, raised the dead, all public and unexplainable. And the religious leaders, I know I'd be in the same shoes, but the religious leaders didn't for one second stop and think, what if he's right? They just wanted Jesus dead. It didn't matter how, any means possible, false witnesses they brought, lying, appealing to Caesar as their king, as their only king. Justice and truth are just thrown out the window. They're no better than Pilate. In fact, they're worse. They're worse. You know why? They were exposed to more truth than anyone. They ignored it. They had the whole Old Testament that clearly pointed to Jesus, and they ignored it. They had the Son of God in their midst, teaching to them, talking with them, and they had him killed. Herod, Pilate, and the religious leaders. Listen, these were all convictionless men. Men without convictions. They only cared about their self-interest. They're clear examples of Romans 18, which says, For the wrath of God... Is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Herod, Pilate, and the religious leaders all suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And before we get too judgmental, this is all of us. Listen, this is all of us. Every time we sin, Every time we sin, we take the truth and we suppress it in unrighteousness. We take the truth that that is clear to us, that God is good, that he is loving, that he is just, that he wants what's best for us, that he is trustworthy. We take that and we suppress it and say, I'm going to do what I want to do anyways. I don't trust you, God. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men. Not only that, listen, we live in a culture that celebrates the suppression of the truth. That celebrates the truth. We live in a postmodern culture that is defined by the question what is truth? A culture that sees truth as a means to an end. A culture that, that encourages people, celebrates, tells people to, to bend, mold, even ignore truth to accomplish the, their end purposes. What is truth? That defines our culture. And I want to be clear. Postmodern philosophy has infiltrated the church. We're more about personal feelings and personal experiences than deep spiritual truths. I heard a pastor recently from a conservative church from our community who was supposed to give a gospel message And he did without using the words sin, death, wrath, debt, Jesus Christ, or the cross. That's not a gospel presentation. He even told the crowd, God doesn't hold anything against you of a bunch of non-believers. Listen, that's only true if you're a Christian and you've put your faith in Christ. We need to boldly embrace truth. We need to embrace doctrine and theology. Right? Those are truths. Those are biblical truths. We need to be a church of convictions. Listen to what Scripture says. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is wrathful towards mankind because mankind has a tendency to suppress the truth. So much so that they had Jesus killed. Jesus even says in in John 18, I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Let's be a church that doesn't suppress the truth. A church that unashamedly and lovingly Stands for truth. Unashamedly and lovingly speaks truth in love. Okay, let me highlight that, that love. Listen, truth without love is harsh. But love without truth isn't love. Which leads me to my final reflection. The simple, beautiful truth of the gospel. Real quick, turn back with me to Luke 20, 23, verse 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 23. Luke 23, 23 says this But they were urgent demanding with with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. You feel the hatred, right? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 24. So Pilate declared that their demand should be granted. You see the suppression of truth. Pilate, knowing this man is innocent, suppresses the truth. Hatred and, and suppressing the truth. Look at verse 25. He released the man, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. That's the gospel. Barabbas, right? The true revolutionary, a murderer, a thief, who truly deserved death on the cross. Here's my guess, and, I, and, I, and there's plenty of theologians and historians agree with, agree with this. Barabbas was supposed to be in that middle cross, And the two guys beside him were the two that followed him in the insurrection and the murder and the robbery. He was the leader of the three. He was let go. He was released because Jesus, the spotless lamb, the innocent one, took his place. That's the gospel. And I love verse 25. I love it because it doesn't use Barabbas' name. It just says, the man. The man. Listen, we are the man. The man. Right, that you could put my name in there. He released Nathan, who deserved death, and delivered Jesus. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, For our sake, he, being God, made him Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We were the rebellious, we are the ones that deserve death. Right? And Jesus came and died on the cross for us, that those that put their faith in Jesus, right, that, they, that their penalty would be paid for and they'd be released from that penalty. And Jesus raised was raised on the third day and sits at the right hand of God as Lord of Lord and King of Kings to this day. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, if you have not put your faith in him, do not leave today without doing that. Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God, as we get closer to the crucifixion, as we get to Thanksgiving and Christmas, I hope that's in the back of our minds, what Jesus did for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the good news, the gospel, Lord, that Jesus came, lived this life that none of us could live, none of us did live, went and paid the price that we all deserve, Lord. We all deserve to, to fe- be found guilty of rebellion against you. But instead, you poured out your wrath on Jesus so that those that put their faith in you, Lord, can be looked, like, looked as like they lived the life of Jesus. He took our penalty. We get his life. It's amazing, Lord. God, I pray as we we get closer and closer to the crucifixion, Lord, that that our hearts are just full of worship, joy, even sorrow, Lord. Sorrow for our sin, but joy for what you have done for us, Lord, and that we could have a relationship with you. Lord, help us live as a church of convictions. Help us to live as a church that embraces truth, that's not afraid or shy to speak truth, Lord. But also, Lord, help us to be a church that's known to be loving. That when we speak truth, people might walk away disagreeing with us, even mad at us, but they, they can't say, hey, that person doesn't love me. I know they love me. I just disagree with them. Help us be that, Lord. Gentle, kind. God, I thank you for this passage this morning. I thank you that that is so clear that Jesus was innocent. Thank you, it's so clear that that we are we are sinners, Lord, and we need your son. Be with us this morning in your son's name, Amen.